as I said, you know, glioblastoma, it's a, just an awful disease. It, it doesn't yeah. matter if you're in the U.S., you know, if you're Ted Kennedy, if you get glioblastoma, you're going to die. If you're Joe Biden's son, Bo, you, if, you, yeah. if you get glioblastoma, you're going to die. If you're the president of MD Anderson, the largest cancer research institute in the world, yeah. if you get glioblastoma, you're going to die. So people know about this disease, but it's considered just maybe the most challenging place to, to operate in oncology. So we really wanted to get the word out early that we were doing something different. And again, it was almost this back to the future path. I said, we have a molecule that that looks and acts and kills cancer cells just like every other anthracycline, but the secret sauce is it gets in the brain. So we used the crowdfunding campaign kind of as a platform to, to build some buzz and awareness around what we were doing. And then and then we decided to take the company public, which was which was a real challenge, and it was a bold move, I guess, from the outside. But the cool thing about my colleagues in this company is that you know we're all fairly, all the scientists included, we're all fairly experienced entrepreneurs. Hello, dreamers and action takers. Welcome to another episode of the Want Money, Got Money podcast. I'm your host, Sam Kamani, and my guest today is John Klemanko. John is the CEO of CNS Pharmaceutical, who are leading the fight against brain cancer or brain tumor. He shares his journey and experience of working in the medical sector and how he has taken world-changing ideas and he has brought them to life. He also shares his experience of crowdfunding and taking CNS Pharmaceutical to be a publicly listed pharmaceutical company. So without further ado, let's get into it. First of all, John, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. We'd love to find out a bit about your background and what you're excited about these days. Great. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I have sort of a varied uh, background. I'm a corporate attorney in the U.S. by training, but it's been many years since I practiced. I, I was involved in tech startups in the Bay Area in the late 90s. I left that and practiced law for about seven years. And then I just, you know, I had the startup bug since I was a kid. And one of my clients, when I was practicing, had an idea for a molecular diagnostic test for adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, which is basically, you know, it's a deformity of the spine. And he was a spine surgeon. He had a concept based on some studies he had done that we could predict this disease using uh, genetic markers called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphism. So just single letter deletions or changes in the DNA code. This was about 2003. So before very inexpensive, easily performed DNA sequencing. So to develop uh, a test for something like this was very, very complicated, you know, and probably like most entrepreneurs, I, I didn't know really fully what I was getting into. It sounded like a game changer and something really interesting. And so yeah. I, I did it and we ended up raising a bunch of money. It basically ate my law practice. So I left law. Our big backers were Johnson and Johnson, Medtronic yeah. and Smith and Nephew. So we had like sort of three of the biggest medical device companies in the world backing us. And, uh, and we did it. It took about seven years, an incredible amount of you know, computational power and everything to do this. But we developed this test. It's still in use today. We sold the company in 2012. And, you know, and it was an amazing formative experience for me to take a, you know, I'd been involved in a bunch of different startups before, but in medicine to take something truly from a 
like a cocktail napkin sketch, which is what it was. I mean, we sat down, the founders, and we sort of mapped out, well, what might this thing look like? What might a test that did this, that predicted the progression of this disease look like? And and that's what we built. And 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 to take it from that all the way to use in clinic, you know, was unbelievable. I mean, I still talk to people all the time, you know, who have scoliosis or their children had scoliosis and they're like, oh, 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 my daughter took that test. Oh, you developed that test? Wow, that's so cool. You know, and, yeah. and they're like, wow, we, we knew right away, like, what was going to happen? I'm like, yeah, that was the idea. And so then I, I, you know, we sold that company and I sat on a number of boards of small public companies. I, I got tapped by some hedge fund investors in the U.S. to help them with some yeah. of their turnarounds. You know, they're, they're sort of, you know, investments that go, weren't going well. And I, I think that was probably because, you know, I would say to people all the time about that first company that, you know, if there was a pothole to hit, we hit it. You know, if there was a mistake to make, we probably made it, you know, and we survived and and with all the bruises, but we, you know, we went end to end, we went sort of conception all the way to putting it on the market, regulatory approval, and then a sale. And so I, you know, as you were saying about your own, you know, background, it's like, you think, well, I don't know, is there any value in any of this? And apparently there was because a lot of investors felt like maybe, okay, this person has been through all these hard knocks in in this space. Maybe they could help some of our companies. And it was through that that, that I was introduced to the founder of, of this company, CNS Pharmaceuticals. His name is Dr. Valdemar Prebe, and he's a professor of medicinal chemistry at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas, which is the largest cancer research institute in the world. And he has a very interesting specialty. He specializes in essentially modifying chemotherapy molecules to do unusual things that they don't historically do. And in our case, the essence of the molecule around which we founded the company, around which Dr. Prebe founded the company, was to basically take a tried and true class of chemotherapy drugs called anthracyclines and make them cross the blood-brain barrier. So these are drugs that um, basically anywhere in the world, if you get breast cancer or ovarian cancer or testicular cancer or lung cancer or leukemia or like a whole host of other terrible cancers, if you get one of these awful diseases, they're very likely to give you an anthracycline as the first chemotherapy. And it's sort of like, mm-hmm. I, I describe it often as the oncologist's sledgehammer. It's the first thing they reach for because they know that it just wipes out cancer cells. It's a very effective class of drug at killing cancer cells. And they basically work by disrupting the mechanism by which uh, DNA unwinds and replicates. And so these drugs tend to hunt down effectively cells that are overexpressing enzymes that are involved in that unwinding of the DNA. Yeah. And the, in, the, in, the, in adults, generally speaking, the only cells that you'll find that are overexpressing those enzymes are tumor cells that are yeah. rapidly proliferating. And, and then it, it disrupts that process. It induces apoptosis. It destroys the cells and destroys the cancer. They're very, very effective at that. But the problem with these drugs historically is that they don't cross the blood-brain barrier. And so even though they're incredibly effective at, at killing cancer cells, they, they really have essentially been useless for central nervous system and brain cancers, whether they're yeah. primary or metastatic, because 
we have this this network of of very very specialized cells that surround our brain that protect it incredibly efficiently. We sometimes like to say that it, the, it, these cells act like bouncers at a nightclub and they have an extremely long list of no admits to the club. So almost Which is a anything, good thing in, in most yeah, cases. Yeah, it's a very good thing. Generally yes. speaking, it's a very good thing, yes. except when you get cancer in your brain, because then almost all the molecules that you would want to get in there and kill these cells can't get in. They're essentially pumped out by these specialized cells faster than they can be accumulated in the brain. So what Dr. Prebe did, and this was really boils right down to why I was even interested in this company to begin with, because what we specialize in is glioblastoma. And glioblastoma is the worst, most aggressive form of primary brain cancer. It's considered right up there with pancreatic cancer in terms of the worst cancer to get, because generally if you get one of those two, you find out very late because there's very few symptoms. There's almost nothing that's effective and you're probably very sadly going to die uh, and die soon of one of those two. The average life expectancy with glioblastoma is only 14 to 16 months. So it's, it's bad news. You don't want this disease. There's almost nothing that has even a dent um, in the mortality rate. And so what Dr. Prebe did was he said, okay, what if I could take this tried and true class of molecule that works for all kinds of things, and I could modify it in a way that would make it go across the blood-brain barrier, but would still be just as effective. And that's what he did. And he basically, he, he took a, a classic sort of anthracycline scaffold, and it has a glycone ring at the center of it. And he, and he attached a benzyl group to that glycone ring and thereby made this anthracycline highly lipophilic. So it was going to have a strong affinity for the most lipid environment in the body, which is in the brain. And so this molecule now crosses through the blood-brain barrier. And once it gets there, it acts just like every other anthracycline. It's going to look for cells that are overexpressing, in this case, the topoisomerase 2 enzyme. And when it finds those, it's going to inhibit that enzyme's function, which is to unwind the DNA. And that is going to induce apoptosis, and those cells will die. And that was the theory. And, and then this drug was actually tested in a phase one trial in the United States, and it was very successful. We had a 44% clinical response rate of what we call stable disease for better. So basically, glioblastoma is such a bad cancer that the gold standard is stable disease, meaning it's it may not be getting better. Your tumor may not be shrinking, but it's not getting worse. Yeah. And so 40, nearly half, 44% of patients who were given this drug, berubicin is its name, received a benefit of stable disease or better. And three patients actually had their tumors shrink two of them up to 80%, and then one patient who's still alive today uh, had his tumor disappear completely. Mm-hmm. And I, I've had dinner uh, with this individual a couple times. He's a really remarkable guy, very neat guy, and a very super intelligent, super prolific, like all, all kinds of real estate development and you name it, interesting mm-hmm. entrepreneurial kind of guy. And he should have been dead a very, very long time ago by this disease. And this drug appears that it you know, may have affected the elimination of his cancer. So we formed the company around that. And that was the story. And, and all of that background to me really comes down to this is the type, this is my favorite kind of innovation. Because it's, to me, in my personal experience, particularly in medicine, it's the kind most likely to succeed. And that is 
We're going to take something that we know works. We absolutely know it works well. We know how it works. That would be the anthracycline. But there's one thing that we can't get it to do, and that's get inside the brain and work on brain cancer. So let's focus our energy on that one piece of innovation, which is what Dr. Preve did, which is far beyond my understanding of chemistry or anything in that department. And, and that appears to work. And so he's, he's taken a very, a very defined and in the grand scheme, potentially small innovation, but an absolutely critical innovation for the application of this type of drug to this type of cancer. And I think that's probably why we were able to take the company public because the, the story is a simple one. He said, okay, you know, oncologists here or anywhere else, what's your favorite tool? We love anthracyclines. Okay. Where would you like to use them that you can't? The brain? Well, we can do that. And, yeah. and here we are. So we're, we're getting ready to start up what we hope is going to be a pivotal phase two study. We submitted our documents to the FDA about two weeks ago, and we're waiting another couple of weeks, hopefully for permission to start using the drug again in humans. And we're planning on testing between ourselves and our partner in Europe, almost 300 patients over the next couple of years with this drug. And, and we'll see if the, you know, if the, if the biology and the chemistry cooperate and they act like they did in the phase one, you know, we could really have a a game changer here. So absolutely. As you explained it so, so well that even I could, I could understand. And so will down to my level over the last few years so I can understand it. You know, not being a scientist, it really, I've told my colleagues, I, I have to take these things and I have to get them, like I have to really feel like I totally understand it at the bottom and then build my way back up so I can actually see how this, how this thing works. So yeah, yeah I'm glad, I'm glad, it, I'm glad it made sense. Yes, just a couple of quick questions. I know generally it's um, not this science heavy, but so it should have theoretically really um, low side effects because it only affects the really fast growing sort of replicating cells like hair and nails. And I mean, just just few, few of those. And from my understanding, the brain is like in adults, it's not that fast. Like it it doesn't grow that much or if at all, like, um, How would it have any effect in in kids or or under eighteen? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have a a partner company uh, based in Poland called WPD Pharmaceuticals, and they they were also founded by Dr. Prebe, who is Polish, and they are going to start the first ever pediatric trial of this drug next year as well, starting in Poland, which is turns out to be a fantastic place to do clinical trials. They are the second biggest contributor to patients to pharmaceutical trials in the United States, approval trials of any country. So it's the US, Poland, and then kind of everyone else, Germany, UK, which is really remarkable. But they have an incredible healthcare system there. It's also very centralized. So for this particular application, if you're a child and you have glioblastoma, you are almost invariably going to end up at one cancer center in Poland. And so they have no competing trials. There's no approved drug uh, for pediatric yeah. brain cancer anywhere in the world. And so yeah. we're really excited uh, to you know to see how this how this works. In terms of its side effect profile in general, it's it's consistent with other anthracyclines. So they have basically discovered over the many years that these drugs have been used that there is a essentially a lifetime cap to the amount that you can take because they are cardiotoxic. So they can they can have a negative impact on your heart function over years, and it can be quite 
beer if you take too much of these things. So they're very dose limited. But one of the great things about this for adults and children is that Dr. Prive's uh, modification of the of the base scaffold was so efficient that we don't have a drug where we have to get massive flooding of the body with this to, to push enough through the brain. And, and we started to see some of that actually even in the phase one trial, the, the complete responder patient, he had, a, he had a, this amazing response at one third what's called the maximum tolerated dose or the MTD. So generally in a phase one, you're looking for what's the most drug that a patient can tolerate. So they, they, they discovered that. 7.5 milligrams per meter squared for this particular drug. But but the complete responder, the best response of them all, uh, was down at about 2 milligrams per meter squared. So that tells us that this drug is very efficient. It gets across mm-hmm. the blood-brain barrier very efficiently, and we can keep the dosage low, which should mitigate those side effects, especially, you know, in a pediatric population. Yeah. Oh, that's that's very, very neat. How did you go about funding this sort of a project because this is not something you can bootstrap it's yeah this is this was not a bootstrap you know it's an interesting space pharma it's it, to me it's the only space which is one of the reasons i i kind of love it you know i like you can you can build an enormously successful company in pharma with just a handful of people and some funding kind of like software you yes. know if, if you have the right people and they work together well you could do it. Now, software, you could do it, you know, in someone's garage and pharma is a little bit different. You have to have a lot of other people's infrastructure to piggyback on and a lot of cash. But what we were able to do is a couple of things. First of all, this drug's actually been in development for quite a number of years slowly. It, It had a former sponsor. It had a lot of grant financing. So before we took on the project as CNS. Yes. It had about $25 million in mainly in grant financing and then some private capital in its previous sponsor. We yeah. bought it uh, from the previous sponsor. They left the oncology field entirely and went into renal disease. And so they had yeah. some oncology assets that they weren't utilizing. We bought this one. And then we did, from that point forward, we did, I would say, uh, some kind of classic startup financing, a lot of friends and family, high net worth individuals yeah. at the beginning. We actually did a crowdfunding campaign, believe it or not. Uh, uh, <laughs> Which is so hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, it's really unusual. And, you know, it was one of these things where we, we, we wanted, mainly we wanted to do it not so much for the cash. We raised some cash, which was nice, but we wanted to get the word out around the world about what we were doing. And that was very effective. We got, you know, many, many tens of thousands of people paying attention to what we were doing and looking at this because, as I said, you know, glioblastoma, it's a, just an awful disease. It, it doesn't yeah. matter if you're in the U.S., you know, if you're Ted Kennedy, if you get glioblastoma, you're going to die. If you're Joe Biden's son, Bo, you, if, you, yeah. if you get glioblastoma, you're going to die. If you're the president of MD Anderson, the largest cancer research institute in the world, yeah. if you get glioblastoma, you're going to die. So people know about this disease, but it's considered just maybe the most challenging place to, to operate in oncology. So we really wanted to get the word out early that we were doing something different. And again, it was almost this back to the future path. I said, we have a molecule that that looks and acts and kills cancer cells, just like every other anthracycline, but the secret sauce is it gets in the brain. Yes. So we used the crowdfunding campaign kind of as a platform to, to build some buzz and awareness around what we were doing. 
And then, and then we decided to take the company public, which was, which was a real challenge. And it was a bold move, I guess, from the outside. But the cool thing about my colleagues in this company is that, you know, we're all fairly, all the scientists included, we're all fairly experienced entrepreneurs. We've been around the block a number of times. We've seen how venture sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't work. And we've seen how other paths of financing work and don't work. And we decided that, you know, if we could actually get the company public, we would have a platform to continue financing it. We would have a platform to tell our story. And and I think maybe most importantly for us, we would have the ability to continue to bet on ourselves because we felt like we really believed in this molecule. We really believed in what it could do. And we did not want to be distracted by, I mean, look, we have a great board and, and, and boards are important and scientific advisors are important. And all of those things are important. We have all those folks around the table and, and I'm a very active listener. But at the end of the day, you know, the molecule is Dr. Prive's baby. You know, my task is to deliver this baby to the market. Yes. And I think we know how to do that. And we've brought in, you know, we've brought in everyone from, you know, Dr. Patrick Wen, who's chair of neuro-oncology at Dana-Farber uh, in Boston, to advise us to the folks that, you know, designed the adaptive cl- trial, clinical trial design lines for FDA, to advise us on how to do this. So we, it's definitely not to say that we think we know better than anybody else, because we have solicited tons of opinions and advice from all kinds of folks about how is the very best way to study this molecule. But at the end of the day, we basically felt like we are laser focused on one thing, and that is trying to to design the best possible study for this drug in the best environment with the best patients to demonstrate whether this could be a game changer for glioblastoma and other forms of um, CNS cancers and, and brain cancers. And, and we don't want to be distracted by really anything else. And we felt like the best mm-hmm. way to do that was maybe oddly enough to be a public company, gave us a, yeah. a, an evergreen financing vehicle, direct access to the investment market, direct access to analysts who seem to be increasingly interested in what we're doing and, and less distraction from the constant you know, private company startup cycle. Raising every year and a half or six months to raise. So every year you're preparing for the raise in the six months time. And I know some have to raise 11 times, 12 times. (laughs) That's that's exactly it. You know, and and this is, I mean, it's a heavy lift. Developing drugs obviously is notoriously expensive. But I think in, in many ways, this has also given us the ability to say, you know what, look, we... We want to, uh, you know, I'd like to think we're pretty good stewards of capital and and we're also stewards of our shareholders capital who actually really own the company. And this gives us the ability to focus on what they want and they want to see this drug develop. They don't want to see the company flooded with, you know, $100 million of cash now for a project that can be executed in stepwise fashion. And, And so we're sort of doing that. And I think We've reported this year, you know, on our, you know, on our quarterly reports, sort of increasing milestones, decreasing cash, which is what you would expect. And, and we've said, look, we, this is our plan all along. You know, we want to see the market 
pay attention to the company, believe in the molecule, and at the yeah. appropriate inflection points, we'll take on the capital that's necessary to keep pushing the, the project forward. Yeah, very, very, very true. And I and I really like that that you guys did a crowdfunding to build the brand, build the awareness. I didn't used to believe in it back in the days, but now I have seen how important that is in doesn't matter how you fundraise, but having that brand awareness is right. like super important. I was the other day I was listening to just online to Scott Kelly and um, an astronaut. And, you know, he was initially he was frustrated, but why do I have to go in front of the camera and talk about and, you know, entertain people and play him songs and, you know, all that stuff, you know? Right. So, and his fellow astronaut, I forgot her name. I think someone Russian. And she said to him that, you know, if you don't care to spread the word out, spread the message out, even people won't care about right. about science, pretty much. Yeah, so yeah. Th- that's what it is. Um, that's absolutely that's absolutely it. I mean, and it's just you know, it's a it's a story, right? I mean, yes. You know, these a company like this. I mean, you know, I, I mean, if you could see around me, I'm sort of su- su- surrounded by piles of research papers and and material and data and all kinds of stuff that backs up the story. But at the end of the day. What this is about is, you know, we have something, as I've said, that I, I think has a very definitive, you know, definitive and elegantly simple innovation around it at a molecular level. And if we're right, yes. you know, it could really change the prognosis for brain cancer patients immediately all, all around the world. I mean, this is a this is a, it's just, it's a heartbreaking disease. When I look back at the data from the phase one study, you know, most of those people are deceased. Even when we started the company and the word got out through the crowdfunding campaign, people who contacted us and said, when can we try the drug? When can we try it? Do you have a right to try program? Yeah. You know, yeah. When is it going to be in trial? Probably all of those folks are deceased. This is a very rapid killer. It's a very efficient killer. And, and there's, and there's very little reason in, in you know in the community to to have sort of a moving hopeful target forward because there hasn't been a single chemotherapy drug approved for this disease in 15 years. The standard of care for cases that recur, which almost all cases do, is a drug called lomustine, and it's not approved for that purpose, which should tell you something about the standard of care. And in Poland and in, in, you know, in many places in the world where they have a centralized healthcare, if you have a particular genetic mutation that 60% of patients with GBM have, so more than half, yes. they give you no chemotherapy because the only approved drug, you will not, you will not metabolize that drug. So they don't even bother giving it to you. And the first time I heard that from, you know, I heard that from the director of the largest oncology center in Poland. Yes. And she said, well, I said, well, what, you know, the, the mutation, it's an MGMT mutation. I said, well, what do you do with those patients? And she said, well, we send them to hospice. Yeah. And, and I said, well, you don't give them anything. And, and she just said, well, you know, nothing works. So we're not going to waste their time. We just send them to hospice so they're comfortable at the end. And I remember just leaving that meeting thinking, how could this be? Like, that, really? That's it? That's the end of the story? And, and we feel like I get emotional about this because I think that even with the gold standard being stable disease, if you can, you know, when you only have a 14 to 16 month life expectancy, another month or two is hugely material. 
It's really yeah. meaningful, people. And if it's a good quality of life, if there aren't a lot of awful side effects and you actually have bought some time, in yeah. addition to buying the hope that your tumor could shrink, it could disappear, we'll find out more data in the coming years on this as we study Brubison. But you know, in an environment without hope, to provide some, I think it's really, that's a worthwhile cause, you know? Oh, absolutely. All all power to you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) When do you expect this to be in in market if provided the trials go as planned, everything goes as planned? Sure. Um, So I think a reasonable timeline, you know, we, we should, we are anticipating being able to begin trials in the first quarter of next year, here in the U.S. and in Poland. We'll yes. probably also be opening uh, some trial sites in Australia and in South America mm-hmm. over time. We anticipate that the main trial, which is a randomized controlled trial of just about 250 people, will take about two and a half years. It's possible that it could go sooner. One of the cool things that, that we have done with this trial is it's, it's, it's basically the, the trial is designed around you know, a Bayesian statistical platform. So we have a defined midpoint in the trial where we will be able to not pause the trial, but pull the data and examine it. And, and if things are going according to plan, and if, if the data is looking good, we can actually shrink the size of the trial from that point forward and still have the same power to, to afford a potential registration. So, you know, in the best case scenario, I would say this is a, you know, this is somewhere around a three to four year project for Burbison as it stands now could be faster, but that's really, you know, if you, if you took our trial soup to nuts all the way to the end and then the data analysis and then the submission, it's probably something like that. But I think, you know, again, given the life expectancy of this patients and the, and the pace of this disease, we will be able to inform the market and patients much sooner than that, whether we're seeing positive data. Yeah, I'm sure you guys get a lot of requests to be a part of the trial and all that. I'm sure we do. We do. Yeah, we do. yeah because it is, it is, it is like future. <laughs> you you are right. building the future. Yeah. Right. Have you got any advice for any aspiring entrepreneurs in the health tech or biotech space? You know, yeah, I think the one thing that I talk to people a lot about in this space, and I talk to investors about it a lot with this particular company is realize that, you know, I mean, I'm a big proponent. Uh, I, I love innovation. I love science and technology. I love seeing big advances. But in healthcare, sometimes I have found that the biggest challenge is in the last it's not even sometimes the last mile. It's so that's like the last quarter mile, by which I mean it's getting rank and file physicians or regulators or payers, you know, insurance companies or national health services to pay for to adopt a new technology to yeah. actually change the way they they work and they care for patients. You know, there's this famous sort of, you know, story about the adoption of antiseptic versus the adoption of, of, of anesthesia. And anesthesia was almost overnight and antiseptic took like 50 years. And, you know, they wonder well, why, why is what? that? Yeah. yeah well, I, I think the story goes that basically antiseptic stopped patients from screaming in surgery, which is driving surgeons crazy. So it was adopted immediately. And antiseptic with, you know, in the 19th century, people were like, what, what difference does this make? Why should I wash my hands? Yeah. Um, 
And slowly the data mounted to the point where it was, you know, it was incontrovertible. You had to do it. Yeah. I found in, in my history in this space, uh, going back 20 or 25 years, that you can have incredible data, mountains of data in this space. You can have an amazing product that will absolutely change the game for patients, has a great economic model around it, all of those things. But to get, again, to get the rank and file, not the innovator, key opinion leading, you know, technologist, surgeon, or oncologist at the leading centers in the world to do things differently, but to get the the rank and file guys and, and ladies around the world to treat their patients differently, it sometimes it takes a lot and it takes more than just data. It, 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 it's incredibly challenging. And when you add to that, as we said, you know, as you said at the very beginning, this highly regulated environment yes. and an environment where you have a disconnect between the people that pay for a service and the people that receive the service, it's a very challenging environment to see innovation actually adopted. And so my advice would be when you're really looking at innovation to back or 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 a particular innovation to put your own time behind it's really maintain focus and ask yourself, you know, are there any excess bells and whistles here that we don't need? What is the what is the key thing that we're trying to change and and improve? And focus really tightly on that. And I think your chances of success will be much, much higher because if you can narrowly define that benefit and you can keep that focus there and, and maybe even repurpose something that has a tried and true element to it in the space, an element of care that doctors and, and, and clinicians and payers and regulators are used to and comfortable with and understand, in our case, a mechanism of action that has been understood for six decades. So there is, I often say, and you never hear a CEO say this, there's nothing new about the way our drug works. It's a topoisomerase 2 inhibitor. There's many of them out there and they've been around for six decades and everyone understands how they work. But what's new about ours is that it gets in the brain and nobody else's does. And when you say something like that, people sit up and they say, wow, geez, if I could have this sledgehammer and use it over here, well, of course I would use that. And that's a different conversation with a doctor than saying, I have a novel mechanism of action. You have never heard of it before. We discovered it. Here's our data. No regulator has ever heard of this before. No payer has ever heard of it before. And I want you to adopt it with your patients. You'll get a lot of, wow, that's that's fascinating. I'd like to learn more. As opposed to, oh, it's an anthracycline that gets in the brain? Oh, wow. Yeah. I know how those work. Terrific. Yeah. When can I use it? That's, you know, that's probably the single biggest lesson or piece of advice in this space, which is, you know, medicine doesn't typically change by massive leaps forward. It changes by incremental movements. And and I feel like we have a really groundbreaking, but yet incremental movement in, in oncology on our hands. And, and that's why I think we have a really good chance of not just academic success. Dr. Prebe has had academic success with this molecule, but real world clinical success. That's what I'm after here. That is that is absolutely amazing. You pretty much gave everyone listening a lesson <laughs> in storytelling, <laughs> how to share your story and so that people resonate, that they want that product, whatever that product might be. In your case, it is uh, a medical innovation. Apart from what you're already working on, what are the key trends do you see in the next five to 10 years in, in your field in medicine? 
Sure. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of exciting things going on in oncology and vaccine research and immunotherapy. I think that, you know, I would, I would expect to see much more development in those areas. And, but also probably, you know, to my earlier point, sort of more focused development, you'll start to see places where those things are actually proving themselves out. And as their mechanisms are understood and both where they are of benefit and where they're not is better understood, you'll see the standard of care slowly shifting in those, in those spaces. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but again, I feel like that's, that's how medicine changes is in small increments. And so sometimes you need something that really breaks up the space. And we've had those in oncology, certainly, but oftentimes you then see the initial excitement pull back a bit as people realize, oh, you know, this is not the magic bullet. This is not the cure-all. There's not going to be one cure for cancer. There's not even going to be one type of tool. It's going to be a combination of tools. We fully expect even what we're working on will be potentially in the future used in combination with other things to extend people's lives and to improve their prognosis. But I think there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful in, in this space because, you know, we are seeing a much better understanding of the way these pathologies work, what works against them, what doesn't, and and then a narrowing and a focusing of these types of innovations on where they're best you know, suited. Yeah, that is very true. Before we go, I've got two quick questions. And one sure. of that is, is there a book that you're reading right now? Is there a book? Yeah, I'm, well, you know, this will, this will tell you more. I'm, I'm about me personally. I'm reading. I'm reading two books right now. One is called "The Bold and the Cold," and it's about Canadian winter mountaineering. I'm a climber, and oh. uh, yeah, hence yeah. the Mount Cook and <laughs> yeah, exactly. and yes, hence the hence the Mount Cook and that. And then the other I'm reading, which is really fascinating. Um, I'm a big uh, reader of uh, history and military history. I'm reading this fascinating book called Hitler's First 100 Days. And uh, it's sort of, it's not like groundbreaking history, but it's basically talking about how it's, what was interesting to me, and particularly in the context of, you know, sort of what's going on in the world right now is, is how how rapidly you could see a society that had been sort of fomenting change in a, in a bad way for a long time suddenly in a very short period of time utterly transform the society and um, all these things that I sort of thought I knew about that period in in history I'm realizing took place in a much more compressed period of time than I thought they had all been sort of building but then suddenly when the when the match was lit the flame just exploded and you know and and we sort of all know what happened from there so those are the those are the two books I'm I'm reading right now yeah let let me tell you an example of where it happened recently not in the politics or the culture side or maybe culture side of things but more on the business and e-commerce side of things so between 2009 to 2019 the amount of commerce done on or e-commerce or online was around it went from 8% to 18% and then in the first eight weeks of of the pandemic it went from 18% to 28% so and and that's when i remember the, the stalin's quote that 
there are sometimes there are decades when when not much happens but then there are sometimes weeks where decades happen so that's a great one yeah, yeah that's so, exactly it sometimes there are weeks when decades happen that's it yes exactly. and so yeah and that's why you know it's like i read people's views on 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 all sorts of platform where like normal people are are sharing their views and and you know it was very hard to read like the other day where someone was sharing that he and his wife they did everything by the book as they were told you know they went to college they bought a house they didn't own credit cards they paid off their mortgage and within just a um, few months of cancer treatment even though they had insurance for his wife they they have lost their house they've lost because it's so expensive in, in right 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 and right. there's like what went wrong you know what did we do wrong we did nothing wrong we did everything right. law abiding citizens and right. you know productive members of and suddenly we are in like complete financial ruin and and debt and it's just like it's already at 20% of gdp it's like how long will this continue and what will this ferment you know the the next you know the next extremist or what what will this lead to in right, the 5 right. years or so that that's what i yeah i find very very interesting and challenging and it's not only us it's like every country they are starting from a lower base they are going from maybe 6 to 7% of gdp as right. their healthcare spend but everyone is increasing and it people can only sustain it for so long right for so long exactly yeah 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 i mean and it's you know it's I mean obviously it's an area that you know the dividends on the investment are enormous for society. I mean it's a great cost but you know look who would want to go backwards. I mean I think that this yeah. you know when the accounting is all done for the vaccine development for COVID-19 it will be astronomical and yet you know okay so i look at this as a i was talking to my son about this this morning and and i was like you know i i can't wait to read the definitive history of this innovation development because it will be a proof that once again when essentially unlimited resources human and capital are mm-hmm. turned onto a single problem we can do things that you know are considered impossible right i mean there were lots of yeah. people who said beginning of this thing forget it you know we're going to be in this for 5 or 10 years no vaccine has ever been developed yeah. uh, against a virus against a coronavirus period but in in any time other than 5 years and blah 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 and i always sort of said you know maybe being overly hopeful but it seems like it's panning out yeah well we've yeah. never had a situation where every single person with any relevant degree of expertise in the subject was focused on exactly the same question and they had effectively unlimited financial resources to work with and every country is pouring down billions right. every Everything. single country Everything. and and here yes. we are and so maybe the trick is to somehow manage the process whereby that type of focus and energy because if you compare that cost which is obviously going to be enormous yes. to the cost of not having done it and having gone some sort of slow incremental pace in dealing with this pandemic as we were talking at the beginning whether it's the US yeah. or or India yeah. you know and the societal cost and the economic cost and the just the bloodbath all the way around it um, is it is obviously we're better off making this enormous investment and getting it done and accomplishing it but the question is how do we then learn from this process and say how could we defeat other problems yes. that 
quickly and maybe that relatively efficiently without you know without creating a monster that's 20% of gnp and we're still wondering or, you know gdp we're still wondering what do we get for that 20% most of the time you know <laughs> it yeah and and the other fact that i learned from one of the vcs is that you know previously 80% used to be the frontline staff dealing with patients and 20% used to be admin now it's the other way around 80% is admin and you know right. other things supporting it and only right. 20% are the doctors and nurses and janitors and re- real people um, right. but but it is it is I, i still think it's an amazing opportunity to 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 cut the fat and you know it might start with as you said with diagnostics and and other things that would take some of the the load off um right. of the system and end with innovation but thank you so much for your time um well, thanks for having me appreciate it it was it. such an interesting conversation that <laughs> it, it did go on for a lot longer than i thought but i got to learn a lot but okay. yeah <laughs> no th- thank you so much finally do you have have a ask for anyone listening any from our audience is there anything you are looking for You know, I don't think we're really looking for anything other than just um, take a look at our story. If it's interesting, go out and buy our stock, you know? Yeah, <laughs> <I mean>? yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're CNSP on the NASDAQ, so. Yeah, that's great. I will put all the links to to your LinkedIn and to your company's website and, and all great. those things. So thank great. you once again. You bet. Thank you. Pleasure Good. talking to you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Want Money, Got Money with Sam Kamani. Hope you enjoyed the show and got some valuable insights that would help you in your startup or your business. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate this show on your favorite platform. It would be extremely helpful and I just cannot tell you how much I would appreciate that.